the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the Kaiser rolls into California and causes Los Angeles to consume kraut. California rolls on its pooties to kick the krauts out. Earks and Zeppelins whiz through the wild blue sense of wonder, plus part 39 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have an interview with alternate history author Robert Conroy. Bob is the author of a whole bevy of alt-history titles. His books for Bain include Himmler's War, Rising Sun, and now, 1920, America's Great War. In this one, Germany and France lose the Battle of the Marne. Germany wins in Europe in World War I and then invades the western U.S., if you've ever wondered what a land war in Texas and California might be like, Bob Conroy gives a pretty good depiction in 1920. We'll talk with Bob in a moment, but first, Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. Hey, we have an interview with Robert Conroy, and we have a new Conroy eARC available at BainEbooks.com in addition to his hardcover, which is available at booksellers this month. Uh, how felicitous is that? Pretty felicitous, I'd say. You can say that again, but don't. Uh, this is the eARC. What is an eARC, by the way, Laura? It's an electronic advanced reader's copy. It's pretty much straight from the author's hands to your eyes, uh, full of typos and... No corrections. No corrections, <laughs> yeah. and you get it several months before the general public does. Right, three and a half months in this case. This is an e-art for Bob Conroy's revolutionary war novel, Liberty, 1784. Bob writes these awesome alt-history what-if tales that really examine all the implications in characters' lives if some major historical event had gone another way. Okay, so what's the event in Liberty that's gone another way? Well, England wins the American Revolutionary War. Washington loses at uh, Yorktown. The Continental Army is crushed, but is that the end for the American insurrection? Let me guess. No, it is not. Well, you'll have to read it to find out, but no, indeed. It's a really fun premise, and uh, the characters are just great, both fictional and fictionalized historical characters as well. Ah, uh, yes, the beauty of eARCs. So Liberty is a March print book, which means if we can't wait, we can read it three and a half months early. That's right. Absolutely. And as usual, Bain eARCs are available exclusively at BainEbooks.com. You can also buy them through the new Bain mobile site, BainEbooks.com forward slash mobile. Are we still beta testing the mobile site? Yeah. And we also have the new Bain Android app ready to download and beta test if you are feeling helpful. Are you feeling helpful? I am feeling helpful. You're paid to feel helpful. <laughs> You can find the link to that as well at com forward slash mobile or mobile. We'll have the iOS app ready, the Apple one, for beta very soon as well. And how do our brave beta testers send us feedback, Laura? They can send it to mobile, M-O-B-I-L-E, at bain.com. 
And you're one of the recipients on that email. Yes. So get your ER, test drive the Bain mobile site, and have a very happy, you better be getting your shopping done or you're fixing to be running around like a crazy person week. I'm joined by Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis, and we want to welcome Robert Conroy to the podcast. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? Hi, Bob. Robert Conroy is an author of many wonderful alternate history novels. For Bain, these include Himmler's War, Rising Sun, 1920 America's Great War, and upcoming this spring, 1784 Liberty, or actually I think it's Liberty 1784, sorry. Bob is the winner of the Sidewise Alternate History Award. He's written for Military History Magazine, and he's traveled extensively in Europe where he's taken a special interest in battlefields and castles. After a mysterious first career in some form of business, Bob turned his passion for military history into a string of alternate history novels. Bob lives in southern Michigan, where he also teaches college-level business and economic courses. Bob, when did it dawn on you that what you wanted to do was write alternate history novels instead of straight historical fiction? You know, I kind of fell into it shortly after taking early retirement. Uh, I was reading a history of espionage in the United States, and it talked about uh, how Kaiser Wilhelm wanted to invade the United States around 1900, so he could have coaling stations for his growing fleet. He didn't want to take the United States. He just wanted to punish us and get us to cede to him the Philippines, Guam, and places like that. Um, so I said, gee, wonder what would have happened if he had actually done this. And the rest is history, or more precisely, alternate history. <laughs> I just And after that, I just kind of fell in love with the idea. I like tweaking history and seeing... What falls out? So this um, the 1920 is is goes back to the beginning of your interest in alternate history because this is a World War One book with uh, Kaiser Wilhelm's uh, son in it. He would have been Wilhelm the Third. Well, I understand you have a couple of rules for your alternate history involving uh, supernatural th things and pseudoscience. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, I, I don't like. Well, excuse me. It's got to be plausible. Uh, technologically, environmentally, politically, uh, you name it. Uh, it's it's got to make sense. Um, one of my rivals in alternate history, if you will, is Harry Turtledove, and people say that he wrote a book, or excuse me, he wrote a book called Guns of the South was the name of the story. It was a standalone science fiction. Uh, great book, but not alternate history. Because of the time travel and the the introduction. Because of the time travel. So what you do is posit... A changed event. Correct. At least so far. Um, and people have asked me, where do I get my plots? And, hey, they're all over the place. Um, if I think of something, as I did the other day, I just simply write it down, and uh, maybe it'll come become a novel someday. But also, it's got to be an event that is important enough to make people interested. Well, in this case, it's so, the, uh, the, the Battle of Marne, is it not, in Europe that changed? Is there anything else that's different in this world? Well, a lot of things spin off of the change in the Battle of the Marne, because as a result of this, the, the Russians, you know, five years, six years later, excuse me, the Russian Empire, the Romanovs, they're still in trouble, but they're there. Similarly, uh, the Habsburgs and uh, whoever was in charge of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were still there. The Ottomans are still ruling in Turkey. The great upheavals of World War One that actually did occur either do not occur or are postponed to some 
vague time in the in the future, but certainly well after 1920. So the Germans win and uh, consolidate their hold on Europe. What's what's the situation in America? Can you set up the entire sort of situation after this uh, after this battle takes place? In the book, in my novel, excuse me, um, Britain and France are forced into a shameful peace, and as would have happened had they had the Germans won. Um, there was a short war, bloody, intensely bloody, uh, and everybody just went home. It would have been more of a traditional war. A few provinces would have changed. That's it. The United States, under Woodrow Wilson, who was a pacifist, would have stayed a, a very peaceful nation. We would not have rearmed. We would not have uh, our military budget would have been small. We had uh, the world's third largest navy, but it was well beyond Great Britain and Germany's. If we would have best, you know, just kind of stagnated. So we were, America was, uh, was a, a great power in the making, but wasn't there yet in 1920. And Germany was... Showing any great ambition. We were very isolationist at that time. Yeah. In fact, we were very isolationist even after World War I uh, and didn't get out of it until World War II. Um, but Woodrow Wilson was a dreamer. He was a utopian. Uh, he had a, when real history came around, he had wonderful thoughts as to how the world should be done, but nobody, of course, wanted to work with him on that because his thoughts were too idealistic, too utopian. And in my book, I have him in 1920 being, as he was, a very, very sick man. Uh, his wife had pretty much taken over the White House. Uh, situation being as it was back then, uh, nobody was questioning her right to deliver messages from her sick husband's bedroom. Consensus is that she was probably the acting president of the United States. He did not die until later, of course, uh, than in my novel, but he was no longer active, viable. Uh, he was a hulk of a husk of a man. It was, it was a disaster for the United States. Even in real history, I believe he, along with a handful of other presidents, were disasters for the United States. I don't suppose we want to go there, but uh, <laughs> I, I think he was, he was, his presidency was a tragedy. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, let's not get into it, but I entirely concur with you that uh, <laughs> that he was not the greatest president. Wilson was a was a disaster. So you have a very different president in 1920 come to power. Um, tell us something about the historical Lansing and and why he might have made a good wartime president had the war had there been war at the time. Well, for one thing, and not being facetious, he was alive and alert. Um, <laughs> He was also a highly experienced Secretary of State. And if you take a quick look at his uh, biography, his credentials post-World uh, War I in real history again, trying not to get them intertwined here, uh, he had a very distinguished career in government. I think he would have been a very sound, decisive, solid president uh, for that time. And according to the rules of succession as they were understood, um, he would have become, uh, he was behind the vice president as next in line to be president. So I think it would have been a good one. Yeah. Well, he's a very, and, a very great, uh, very interesting presence in the book. He makes a great viewpoint character as president. So the, the I liked it. Yeah. I liked it. Did, uh, the Zimmerman telegram happens, uh, Sets it all off. What was you mentioned some of it? What was Imperial Germans Germany's plan if they won the Great War in Europe with with America or the Americas? What, what they wanted 
there are a couple of things happening at the same time. As the, it looked like the United States was going to get into World War I in real history, the Germans sent a telegram to Mexico from their foreign minister, Zimmerman, which said, hey, you help us fight the United States, we will help you get back Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and uh, California, uh, the areas that they had lost in the Mexican War. So the Zimmerman telegram was a real thing, and it was the last straw. Uh, it actually prompted Woodrow Wilson to do something, to realize that despite his wanting for peace, it wasn't going to happen. So he had, Wilson actually had the United States declare war on Germany. So the Zimmerman telegram was real. I just played with it in the novel to have the impact of it a little bit differently. Sure, and the and so basically, what you did was say, what if uh, what if Germany tried to do what they they said they were going to try to do in the Zimmerman telegram? Was, There's was, nothing to stop them. Yeah, we you know, like I said, a very pacifist Wilson, who was again very very ill, uh, would have allowed German influence to spread in Mexico because they would have allied themselves with one of the factions that was fighting another faction in one of Mexico's interminable civil wars. Again, there was a couple of people have responded to saying that the Germans didn't have the wherewithal to do this. And I said, why not? Not only were they a great military and naval power, but I also give them a couple of years in which to accomplish this. Now, somebody might just say, well, what about the Monroe Doctrine? Well, my response would be, well, what about it? The Monroe Doctrine was suspended many times or ignored. Uh, you might not be aware of this, but in 1860, right during the Civil War, France invaded Mexico, and we and the United States did nothing. We were just far too busy fighting the South. I think they would have been allowed to do this. And, of course, that's my opinion, and uh, I know that because alternate history is so much uh, opinion, I'm going to get arguments on that. Well, that's sort of the fun of it, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is, although I, I sometimes I read or some of the amateur reviews, and uh, it's evident that whoever did this never read the darn book. Mm -hmm. Just an, an aside for me would be that, uh, you know, the Monroe Doctrine only is is a doctrine insofar as you have the power to enforce it. <laughs> and if you're trying to fight yeah. against Germany, you're not going to have much success in, in, at that time. If you just want to tell them, don't go into to Mexico, they probably would ignore you. So. Uh, I'm thinking of lines drawn in the sand, yes. So the book, it literally takes place on two fronts, Texas and California. Texas is invaded by Mexican forces while the Germans invade California via Mexico. I've often wondered what a big land war in the American West would be like, and you give us one here. At first, most of the state just lay open to invaders. Right. But, of course, I have the German saboteurs uh, protecting themselves by isolating the state from any reinforcements that might come uh, from the east. Uh, the number of forces that we would have had in California, very, very small, uh, scattered around, uh, National Guard and reserves, uh, small numbers, scattered around, poorly trained, poorly armed, we would have been extremely vulnerable. The only saving grace, of course, is that California is so darn big. They were not about to, they couldn't just race up California. They being the Germans, of course. Well, they were, uh, like all armies, limited by their supply lines, I suppose. And uh, Yes. 
the German saboteurs are particularly interesting because America was not cut through with interstates and, and at the time. There was ways the, – the Rockies were still a formidable barrier for getting things west. Yes. In fact, I think the only thing that has really, really changed since then is uh, the airplane, um, the fact that we can do air transport. Because I think that um, the roads, railroads and highways through the Rockies and other mountains uh, are – Almost as vulnerable, of course, not not quite as. We, we have much better snowplows now, um, but yeah, the weather is a big factor still. But back then, it would have been disastrous. So there are some there's some great historical figures in 1920. Um, it was really fun to see folks who would become great historical figures. But we also have these great fictional characters that you that are really the viewpoint characters. That quartet of Luke Martell, Kirsten Beale, Josh Cornell, and uh, Elise Thompson. And you really do a great job of putting them between the higher levels of command and the, and the down and dirty stuff on the ground. I really like Luke, who's sort of your hero. What's his background in the book? Who is he? Well, he's a gentleman who enlisted at a young age. Uh, and in, again, mixing up real history with alternate history, uh, in around 1916, we actually sent a punitive force to Mexico because they were raiding across the border. So I had him being as part of that, gaining a promotion and uh, getting the eye of uh, some people who were in command. Um, therefore, he was in getting a battlefield con um, commission. I liked him. He's a little rough and ready, not well educated, a little sinister, uh, certainly a little little deadly. But uh, I, th I thought he was a good character. So he would be a special forces guy now if oh, yes. uh, if we had them back then. So many people have looked at the novels and say, oh, it's about a war. Uh, of course it is. But I think you mentioned that uh, the characters, particularly the female characters, are, I think, fairly strongly drawn. I don't want to write a super macho book where a character like Martel is out there eating barbed wire for lunch. Uh, you know, these, I want these to be sympathetic people who have real lives, romance. And I noticed you didn't mention the Texan. Uh, who was uh, held off at the, the second Alamo, because he was another character who was tough but very, very human. That would be Captain Toby of the uh, of the Texas Rangers. Yeah. You, you also have Lejeune, the act, the real Lejeune Marine, come down there and help him out, which was fun. And I also had one of the Marine sergeants, uh, Sergeant Daly. Uh, you know, come on, you sons of bitches, you want to live forever. Uh, he actually said that in World War One. Uh, and Toby, uh, yeah, Toby was, uh, his, his view, his, he started out with some fairly racist views about Mexicans, and by the end, uh, he, he had changed them. Yes, extremely common racist views. Less common today, although it's a long ways from perfect. Um, but yeah, this, this, this was the thinking at that time. The attitudes change. Uh, the simple fact is that uh, the Mexicans didn't like us, we didn't like them. And if that's racism or just plain ordinary hatred, I don't know. The Mexicans felt rather correctly that we stole half their country from them. And uh, we felt that they, we, they were a bunch of ignorant peasants who weren't doing anything with the country that we had stolen from them. Well, they were having some trouble getting a government in place, that's for sure. Yeah, that's an understatement. Well, it was really fun to see who would become the great historical figures of, of World War II show up at their, as their younger selves. Um, you, you have Eisenhower, and particularly I liked Patton. 
He was such a colorful guy. He must have been a lot of fun to write. Oh, yes. He's, he's a pirate. It was, he would have been a great Viking, a great pirate. Of course, he believed in reincarnation, and he thought that he had been uh, Julius Caesar at one, in one life past, or something like that. Very colorful character. Yeah, he was also a bit of a snob. Yes. Um, he traced his genealogy back to the American Revolution, generals in there, con- uh, Confederacy. Um, and he was also, well, he liked women, let's put it that way. <laughs> he had no, no problems whatsoever. Well, speaking of women, you have a wonderful cameo from Amelia Earhart um, as well in there. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but we see a few military innovations arrive of necessity in 1920, the novel. Um, does the fact that it's been a few years later than World War I make that possible? Were there, were there really crucial advancements in that time that would, we would have seen in warfare? Uh, possibly, and that's the fun of alternate history. I, I tried to figure it out, you know, Certain, not like armored vehicles, uh, they were already armoring cars and trucks. So what was the next logical step? The tracks vehicles, of course. Uh, we already had machine guns. We already had airplanes. And uh, we already had guns attached to airplanes. And uh, so I, I think in particular, the German advancements with their bombers, for God's sakes, those things were huge, uh, even for their day. Uh, I think they would have... I think there would have been those those advancements would have occurred, particularly with the Germans. And looking back on some other things, such as uh, uh, certain types of weapons that the U.S. was using, they were already in development, but not much. And again, the submarine. Yes, we already we did have submarines. Again, just only a few, but we did have a fairly large surface fleet, and the battleships uh, like the Arizona and so forth uh, were there. There's some great uh, great naval warfare portions of 1920 as well. Your next novel takes takes on a very different era, The uh, one of my favorites, which is the American Revolution. What's the central conceit of that book? That's liberty. Liberty is, uh, as a very central, very simple central theme, uh, we lose. Um, there were m- multiple times that during the Revolution when disaster could have caused the American Revolution to collapse. Uh, I choose it to happen at Yorktown when the exhausted American army arrives at Yorktown to find that the British had been reinforced and that the desperate throw of the dice, which it was by Washington, uh, had failed and that the British had sealed off uh, the Chesapeake, uh, were heavily reinforced and were now advancing on him. Uh, so the American Revolution simply collapses. Um, Washington is taken prisoner. There is an exodus of hardcore rebels that heads out to what is now the American Midwest and try to set up life. Uh, and uh, the British, of course, are very upset about their being there. So they send an army out to find and destroy uh, the American base, American community, which is called Liberty. I use uh, General Burgoyne, who's trying to build back his reputation after losing it at Saratoga, and a few other people. And frankly, I had, again, had a lot of fun with it. Uh, this is an area that I know fairly well. Again, it's plausible. Uh, could they have made a large trek like that over to essentially Illinois? Yes. In the early, very early 1800s, I think about 1804, which isn't that far removed from Liberty, 
the British had invaded South Africa, the South African Boers uh, decided they didn't like that, so they picked up and moved about a thousand miles into central, more of Central Africa, and set up the, the Republic of South Africa, or the Orange Free State. Excuse me. So it could have happened. That again goes to the plausibility factor. We often hear that you know Washington was hanging on by a thread, and the revolution was uh, just an, an incredible uh, stroke of luck, and the French showing up or not was was. But it may have gone on even afterwards. I mean, it wasn't over even when it was over, which sort of made me feel all patriotic. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Good. Now, again, that's the idea of liberty. Okay, we're we're down, but not forever. Um, And the British, of course, are concerned that we might come back. So they send an army out to really put an end to it. And, of course, maybe they don't is sort of a, a mirroring of the fir- of the beginning of the French and Indian War when uh when the British sent that expedition out to uh out to what became Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and Braddock's uh, expedition to Duquesne and it just yeah Braddock and it just was um it, they didn't realize the huge distances involved in crossing American land it wasn't like a European battle well I'll tell you the truth it's it, many Europeans don't realize that now uh, I worked with uh, some Germans uh, who were in New York, and I was talking to one gentleman on the phone that said he was in New York, but he wanted us going to dash up to Pittsburgh for lunch. <laughs> so, yeah, I suggested he get a map. Let's go back to 1920. You don't shy away from the horrors of war in your novel. Some of them are timeless. Also uh, important in the novel is the Spanish flu epidemic that took place in, you have it take place in 1920 instead of 17 and 18 when I think it it happened. That epidemic um, killed my great-grandmother, by the way, and left my my grandfather uh, a two-year-old without a mother. So it it has a legendary status in, in our family. That was a bad one, wasn't it? It was absolutely terrible. Uh, by the way, my uh, mother, who is uh, extremely old now, I did get from her. She was she was was not born yet when this came, but she. I asked her if her family suffered from the epidemic. They were in Philadelphia, and she said, "Oh, we, they didn't suffer too much. Just a few cousins." Well, so this- it was it was a horrible time. They now strongly believe that it that it originated here in the United States, not in Europe. So it probably wasn't a product of all those guys. It exacerbated it, the war, but it wasn't necessarily a product of all those guys um, coming together and, and creating some super virus. No, the super virus was already created. Then then when they got to the camps, they spread it. But they can, they've actually traced it to a village in Kansas that sent, of course, a bunch of people who had been drafted uh, to military camps where... There was just hygiene what was unheard of, uh, and people just started dying. And, of course, the camps were themselves under great pressure to send troops out to the cities to the, then send them over to Europe. So when they sent them to the cities where there were hospitals, they didn't know what to do with them, so the, the, the influenza just spread and spread and spread. I don't think anything – this happened in 1917-18. And when it comes to 1920, I don't think it would have been any different. Because we we were just not expecting it. So again, no spoilers, but it's pretty clear from the beginning uh, of 1920 that a big battle is going to take place for San Francisco. What are the peculiarities from a military perspective of San Francisco if it got attacked? What would the attackers and defenders have to contend with? Well, it was getting rather hilly and rugged. Um, 
you can visualize San Francisco as it was back then, uh, being that being nothing more than a large peninsula, um, and that could have been sealed off. Also, you could have sealed off uh, the land that went into the mountains. Uh, that wasn't that far because the mountains were starting to close in on San Francisco. The, the battleground, in, its, uh, in effect, narrowed. It would not, there, there would have been, like I said, hilly country, but not insurmountable country. And again, without giving too much away, um, trucks and armored vehicles were able to drive around. It would have been much, I think the, it was very difficult for the defenders in this book because there just weren't that many of them. And of course, the Germans, uh, were well trained, well armed, and over there. So geographically, I don't think there was anything huge to prevent uh, the Germans or anything great to help the help the Americans. Well, we touched on it a little bit before, but uh, another thing that struck me was how primitive a lot of the U.S. outback really was. Um, <clears throat> people didn't have phones, electricity, trains were really the only means of, of mass transport. That the role of trains and train tracks and trestles is crucial in the in the novel. How did what was the infrastructure like back then? I'd say we were a developing country. If we were to look at another country today, uh, we would say that they don't have roads. Well, the roads were not paved. There were no highways. There were no, there were few, te- there were telephones, but there were few and far between. And in the main, they weren't out west. Uh, you know, phones and long distance had been around for quite some time, but, uh, maybe not in Southern California where nobody lived anyhow. Getting from point A to point B meant you, Either, well, you didn't walk, it's just too much. But, uh, horse and buggage, horse and buggy, a carriage, a wagon, or a train, which of course trains did not go everywhere, so they had to, you know, make that last few miles, those last few miles somehow or other. Airplanes were great for delivering messages. We had the telegraph, which was a godsend, because we could communicate. Uh, we had the transatlantic cable, uh, and, the, and in the book, uh, I believe it mentions that even though the lines are cut from the the west coast is cut off from the east coast, they can still communicate via the transatlantic cable, which went from San Francisco uh, over to London and back to New York. Again, a relatively primitive, uh, in our minds, society. Uh, you want to look at sanitation? I think we were dealing mostly with outhouses. Um, if you want to look at um, how do you heat how do you heat the house? Uh, a Franklin stove or a fireplace or just wear a lot of clothing. So much of what we take for granted now uh, was fun to, 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 to rediscover when I was doing the research for 1920. People would survive quite nicely, but, but you know, they had to do it all the while without cable. The book is a wonderful evocation of the era and uh, has some great action in it, some love stories as well. Um, we're talking about 1920, America's Great War by Robert Conroy. It's out from Bain in hardcover and at booksellers everywhere. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. For having me. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is brought to you by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. 
After a fierce war, Otter Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering, low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the verge, a region at the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside aid. Aid they are receiving in the form of weapons drops by agents claiming to represent the star empire of Manticore. But it's a ruse. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason alignment, eugenic supremacists who wish to see the Solarian League and the Star Empire at war. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the RMN forces in the nearby Talbot Quadrant. Goldpeak has discovered the false promises made by Mason agents and is ready to use that information to her advantage. In the Mobius system, rebels have begun an assault on the capital. With a foothold in the capital, they plan to hold out for naval support. Support their Mason contacts have never intended to deliver. Now, much to the surprise of both the lineman operatives and the Sollies, that support is on the way, courtesy of Admiral Goldpeak and the Royal Manticoran Navy. Here is Part 39 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. July 1922, Post-Diaspora Why is it that people like you always think you're more ruthless than people like me? Commodore Sir Ivars Terakov, Royal Manticore and Navy Chapter 30 Lieutenant Commander Hiroshi Hammond, SLNS Oceanus's tactical officer, had the watch. At the moment, he was tipped back in the chair at the center of the light cruiser's command bridge, trying unsuccessfully to think about nothing at all, as yet another late-night watch crept towards its end with all the fleetness of a crippled snail. There hadn't been anything for Oceanus to do over the last local week or so, thank God, but he hated nights like this. Sitting in orbit around a backwater planet like Mobius Beta with nothing to do, had to be the most mind-numbingly boring duty in the entire galaxy, even at the best of times, far less times like these, and he hated the way it turned his mind inward, left him no choice but to contemplate things he'd far rather not think about at all. Still, thinking about some things damned well beat hell out of actually doing them. Hiroshi Hammond had been called upon to do some pretty crappy things during his career, that happened a lot in Frontier Fleet, whatever the recruiter said, and Hammond came from a well-established naval family. He couldn't pretend he hadn't known that was the case going in, but the first week or so after their arrival in system, that had been bad. At least it's going to be over soon, he told himself, gazing up at the deckhead, trying to close his mind to what was happening on the planet so far below his ship. One way or the other, it's going to be over, and I'm not going to have to kill any more towns before it is. Now if he could only figure out some way to absolve himself of his crushing sense of guilt for what he'd already done. God damn, Brigadier Usel. The thought rolled through the back of his brain with the cold, measured precision of a prayer. 
His had been the hand that pressed the button, but the order had come from her, and if there was any justice in the universe... Hyperfootprint! Multiple hyperfootprints! The sudden announcement from the senior tactical reading of the watch twitched Hammond up out of his bleak reverie. He snapped his chair upright and turned towards Lieutenant Gareth Garrett, who was CNS's junior tactical officer, who was holding down the tax section at the moment. It was obvious Garrett had been just as surprised as Hammond, but the JTO was already leaning forward, hands moving across its console as the icons from the Combat Information Center appeared upon his display. CIC makes it 13 sources, sir, the lieutenant reported after a moment, and Hammond felt his muscles tighten. They're half a light minute outside the hyperlimit, Garrett continued. That puts them at a range of 215.9 million clicks. Current closing velocity, 9013 KPS. Acceleration, 5.7 KPS squared. Class IDs? Hammond asked. We won't have anything light speed for another twelve minutes or so, sir. Garrett replied in a curiously flat voice. But from the footprints, CIC is calling it twelve cruisers and a super dreadnought. A super? Hammond cut off the automatic and stupid repetition and closed his mouth tightly. Garrett was young, but not young enough to make that kind of mistake. If he said CIC had identified a super dreadnought, then that was what CIC had told him. Even if the massive ship's observed acceleration was a full KPS squared higher than Oceanus could have turned out with a zero safety margin on her inertial compensator. Mantis, Hammond thought while icicles formed in his bone marrow. With that kind of excel, it's got to be Mantis. And if it is... He decided not to think about that as his thumb reached for the general quarters button. Anything from them? Commander Tremont Watson demanded as he strode explosively onto Oceanus's bridge. No, sir. Lieutenant Branston Shang, the light cruiser's communications officer, had managed to beat the CO to the command deck. Now he looked over his shoulder at Watson and shook his head. Given the range, there won't be for at least another three minutes, even assuming they know we're here to be transmitting to, sir. He added respectfully. Watson nodded curtly and crossed to the command chair Hammond had abandoned upon his arrival. It was an indication of the CO's state of mind that he'd asked the question in the first place, Hammond thought. Or perhaps the original range figures simply hadn't registered with him. Of course, if that was true, it was a pretty significant comment on Watson's state of mind all by itself, he reflected, as the CO dropped into the chair he'd just vacated. Any more details on them, Hiroshi? Not really, Skipper. Hammond shrugged unhappily. They only made their alpha translation nine minutes ago, so we still don't have any light speed confirmation, but CIC is confident about their mass estimates and wedge strengths. And about the acceleration numbers, I presume. Watson said grimly. Yes, sir. Hammond wasn't looking or feeling any happier. They're up to a closing velocity of just under 4,000 KPS. GG, he nodded at Garrett, makes it three hours and 14 minutes to a zero-zero intercept with the planet, and us, of course. Turnover in about an hour and a half. Velocity at turnover will be right on 35,000 KPS. Wonderful. 
Watson punched controls on the command chair armrest, deploying his own displays, then looked back up at Hammond. All right, you're relieved. Take your station and send Gigi off to the exec. I stand relieved, Hammond said formally and twitched his head at Garrett. You heard the skipper, Gigi. I've got it. Shag your butt down to Command Bravo. Yes, sir. Garrett popped up out of his station chair and left for the cruiser's backup command deck at a run. Hammond settled into his place, taking over the tactical console and wishing he could believe anything he might do could make any difference at all to what was about to happen. I don't suppose anyone's tried to contact us yet, Adelante? Sir Ivaris Terakov asked. No, sir. Lieutenant Adelante Montella looked up from her console and shook her head, her expression grim. I wish someone would, she added. I'd a lot rather be dealing with that than listening to this, sir. She gestured at the small display in front of her, where a man in the uniform of the Mobius Presidential Guard sat at a desk in front of crossed planetary flags, reading from his prepared notes. The sound was muted, but she'd shunted the feed to her earbug. Commander Pope, Terakov's chief of staff, and Lieutenant Commander Mateus Odegaard, his staff intelligence officer, were listening along with her over their own earbugs, and their expressions were as grim as her own. Terakov nodded in understanding. He'd listened to five or six minutes of the news transmissions from Mobius himself before he'd handed it off to Pope and Odegaard. He'd felt guilty about doing that, but he'd also decided it would be far better to distance himself from it, at least for now. The last thing he needed was to be listening to that kind of crap when he might very well be making decisions about who lived and who died in the next few hours. He couldn't afford to open himself to that sort of rage, however deserved it might be, so he turned to Commander Stilwell Lewis instead. How much longer for the platforms to give us a good look at the planetary orbital stilt? He asked. Not long, sir, his operations officer replied. They're only about 96 light seconds from Mobius Beta now. In fact, if there's anything in orbit with active impellers, it's got to be on the far side of the planet from us at the moment, or we'd already have picked it up. Good. Terakov tipped back in his command chair, gazing at the master plot. Quentin St. James had re-entered normal space 26 minutes earlier. During that time, she'd increased her end space velocity to just over 9,400 kilometers per second, and traveled just under 7.8 million kilometers towards the planet officially designated Mobius Beta. During that same interval, the Ghost Rider recon platforms they'd deployed as soon as they'd made their alpha translation had traveled 10.5 light minutes, almost 200 million kilometers, at their vastly higher acceleration. In fact, they were already decelerating towards a zero-zero rendezvous with the planet. He had a pretty good idea what those platforms were going to find. The news transmissions to the Delta Belt habitats, which Quentin St. James had intercepted since translating back into normal space, made it abundantly clear that the Solarian intervention battalions the MLF had feared were underway had beaten his own force to the Mobius system, and that meant there had to be... We've got them, sir, Lewis said suddenly and Terakov's eyes narrowed as a quartet of impeller signatures appeared on the plot, creeping around the icon of the planet. The platforms are still 92 light seconds out, 
but we should be getting good visual in another minute or so, the ops officer continued. CIC is calling them destroyers for now, but... He paused again for a moment, studying his displays carefully, then looked back at Terikov. Correction, sir, it looks like a Morrigan-class light cruiser and a trio of War Harvest-class destroyers. One of the tin cans could be a rampart, though, with all the refits Frontier Fleet's destroyer fleet's been through. He shrugged, and Terikov nodded. At this range, even Ghost Rider platforms were doing well to have given them that much information. Nothing else with hot nodes? He asked. No, sir, but we're picking up a good-sized merchant hull on visual. If I had to guess, I'd guess it was the transport OFS used to haul in its troops, but we can't confirm that at this point. I don't see anything else they could have used, though. Makes sense, Terikov agreed. He gazed at the display for another minute or so, then sat back in his chair again and looked at his chief of staff. If their nodes are up, I'm guessing it's because they've figured out we're coming to call, Tom, he said. Probably, Commander Pope agreed. I can't think of any other reason they'd be sitting in orbit putting time on the nodes, and even Solly should have picked up our footprints at this piddling little range— of course, he smiled thinly. If they've got a good read on our tonnages, they've got to be feeling mighty unhappy right now, especially if they figure clouds a waller. Terikov snorted in agreement. Just his cruisers would have been enough to make mincemeat out of those obsolescent vessels, even without Mark 16s. With Mark 16s, his flagship could have killed all of them all by herself, and a super dreadnought, any super dreadnought, far less an SDP, which was exactly what Captain Simone Weiss's SELAC had to look like to the Sali's gravitic sensors, could have obliterated them with a single broadside. Of course, if these people had any idea what modern lacks were capable of, Cloud would probably scare them even worse than an SD, he thought. And the acceleration numbers have to be giving them furiously to think, too. Now that we've found them, do you want to talk to them, sir? Pope asked after a moment, and Terikov scratched his chin thoughtfully. An interesting question, he decided after a moment. In fact, he turned to look at his youthful flag lieutenant. Tutorial time, Helen, he said with a slight smile. Yes, sir. If Ensign Zilwicky felt any trepidation... She hid it well, he thought. Opinion, Miss Zilwicky. Do we talk to them now, or do we let them wait? Helen's eyes narrowed as she considered the question. She was too busy thinking to notice the way several of Terikov's staffers looked at one another with smiles. Not that it would have bothered her if she had noticed. She'd grown accustomed to Terikov's impromptu quizzes, and she knew it was a serious question despite his quizzical tone. I think not, sir, she said after a moment. Why not? he asked. As you and Commander Pope just said, they have to know we're here by now, sir. And from our acceleration numbers, they've got to have a pretty good guess who we are. Under the circumstances, I think it makes more sense to let them sweat until either they break down and talk to us, or we're good and ready to talk to them. 
Why? Anyone with a working brain would have to realize they're toast if it comes to a fight, sir, she said. On the other hand, these are Sully's, and we all know how reasonable they are. And to be fair, they probably haven't heard anything but bits and pieces, if that, about what's been going on elsewhere. Since they came from Myers, they have to know what happened at New Tuscany and Spindle, but they probably haven't heard anything about Saltash. She shrugged. If they haven't, they may think the same way Duenas did and figure we'll hesitate about pulling the trigger if it comes to it. So I think it'd be a good idea to let some of that solely arrogance soften, and if we let them sweat, we take the psychological advantage no matter who finally winds up opening communications. If they end up driven to talk to us, they start out in a position of weakness, and Solis just aren't used to finding themselves places like that. And the longer we wait to talk to them, the longer they have to see our super-dreadnought coming at them and think about all the things it can do to them. She smiled nastily. I don't care if they are the invincible Solarian Lake Navy. That's got to make them nervous, sir. And if we use a Hermes boy when we finally do talk to them... Her voice trailed off, and her expression turned absolutely beatific. I see. Terakov regarded her thoughtfully for a moment, then nodded. Works for me, he said, and smiled at Pope. And now that Ensign Zilwicky has so masterfully summarized her proposed approach, let's give some thought to making it work most effectively. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 39, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. In a San Joaquin Valley sized lake of single malt scotch, an old gross stand of Cuban cigars, and a 100 sop with camel salute to Robert Conroy, author of 1920 America's Great War. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars 